following is a presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. For more information on Cornerstone, as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit cbcvirginia.com. Good morning. Please turn to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18. It's page number 823. Using one of the Bibles there in the seat in front of you. When you get there, please look at verse 21. We're going to read verses 21 to 35 together, taking a little break from Mark this Sunday. And we're going to go to the Lord in prayer when we're done. If you're there, please look at verse 21. Then Peter came up and said to him, Jesus, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him ten thousand talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity, out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. But he refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger... His master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Let's pray. Father, as we take a little break from Mark today and we think about this passage that we've just read, I pray, Spirit, that you will convict us, that you will show us our own hypocrisy, our own self-righteousness, our own sinfulness. You have forgiven us of so much, and so often we do not want to forgive those who sin against us. And so I pray this morning that you will address that in our hearts in a way that my words never can. Your word is powerful. Spirit, you are powerful. You apply your word to the hearts of your people. So we ask for that this morning. Help us to to recognize the great grace that has been shown to us so that we may show it to others as well. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So uh, when we were in Chicago last Christmas, we went up for the Christmas holiday. We were there for about 10 days. And on one of the particular days, I don't remember which one, we decided to drive around us and Jamie's mom and dad. And so we're driving around, not the downtown, the main downtown area, but kind of a little west of that and some of the other downtown kind of areas. It's kind of a cool spot. 
and a lot of ethnic neighborhoods uh, scattered here and there, and we're driving through one of them, and as we were driving, I saw this little local Mexican restaurant, just not a chain, just a little local place, and the sign that they had out front uh, was so interesting to me that I had to stop and take a picture. And I'll warn you, the quality of the photo is not great because we were driving, so if it's a little grainy, I apologize, but we got a quick photo of it. Here it is. It is the Cilantro Taco and Grill. And as you can see, their slogan here is, it's good to go. Now, I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that if you are the owner of a restaurant, you should never have your slogan be, it's good to go, right? I mean, just think about it for a moment. Because it makes you wonder what kinds of foods they're serving there. Is it like their specialty, uh, like prune and flax tacos with a they pair well with a, a Metamucil-infused double espresso margarita kind of thing. I mean, it, just, it just brings up all kinds of, of wrong thoughts. Uh, for all I know, having ridiculed them, for all I know, it's a takeout place. I mean, I've never seen this place before. I doubt I'll ever find it again. And so maybe that's what they meant by it's, it's good to go. But regardless, the way they have chosen to present themselves has definitely caused some confusion. Well, in a similar way, uh, I fear we've done the same thing in relation to the Lord's table. You know, if you were with us back in January, just a couple months ago, then you know we took two Sundays particularly to work through Mark's account. We actually took three total, but two for this specifically. We, t we took two Sundays to work through Mark's account of the upper room, specifically in relation to trying to get a right understanding about this thing we call the Lord's table. And one of my big takeaways, just behind the scenes personally, and I share this in, in not these directive words, but one of my big takeaways from all that was that the way we have presented the Lord's table over the years here at Cornerstone, I mean, just specifically here in our own church, has probably led to some confusion on all of our parts. You see, over the past eight and a half years, we have generally, if not always, and I actually do think it may be always, but I'll just say generally for the moment, we have generally practiced communion in exactly the same way. So, you know, we remove the front row of chairs, and there's a table up here at the front, and, and I'll preach something, you know, a sermon, and then at the end we'll, we'll call a group of men to the front, and they all march up here like soldiers, and they sit down, and then uh, I serve them, and I go through a little script that we have, and they serve you, and then we all eat and drink together, et cetera. You, you know the way we do it. And we've done it that way because it's the way we've always done it. We've done it that way because that's the way all of us grew up doing it, or many of us in this room grew up doing it. I mean, it's the way my church did it growing up. We followed that same basic pattern. We do it this way because the church that planted us 15 years ago this August, hard to believe we're going to be 15 years old this year, uh, did it this way. And so we just sort of adopted their practice, practice and kept doing it that way as well. And without realizing it, by, by doing it in those ways for so long, I fear that it has led us all to a bit of confusion over what the Lord's table really is and why we do this thing in the first place. And our study in Mark back in January really brought a lot of that to light for me and hopefully for some of you as well. And so today we're going to do things a little bit differently. Now, having said that, I do want to laugh at us just a little bit because it's always good to laugh at yourself. If you can't laugh at yourself, then something's wrong with you in life. Uh, I, uh, for those of you who went to the Good Friday service uh, a couple of Fridays ago now, um, how many of you were a little thrown off by the self-serve communion thing? Be honest. Yes, thank you. A few honest hands in here. I, uh, I was chuckling as we were getting ready that night for the service. I saw what they were doing, and so I asked one of the other pastors, so hey, what's the, what's the plan here? And so they, they described to me, and I thought, oh man, I was like, 
Cornerstone's not going to know what to do with this. We, we, and I told him that. I said, look, our folks have never done it this way. You know how tradition is. It gets in people's minds, and they see something different. They freak out. So you're going to have to explain this to people and, and help them understand. And, and you guys did well. Uh, one of the things I was curious about, though, was who would be the first cornerstone person to be brave and to step out and go get their own communion stuff. Now, obviously, I couldn't see behind me, so if you were behind me and you were actually the first person, I apologize, but from the, where I was sitting, the first cornerstone person who was brave and stepped out, Mr. Greg Watts. So, Greg, we applaud you today. Thank you for being brave and leading the way at Cornerstone, you know? That was, that was different for us, right? I mean, we had never done it that way, and is it a right-wrong thing? No. The New Testament never prescribes how the church is supposed to do this. There's actually a lot that's not prescribed about the practice. And so it was totally fine. In fact, I was joking with one of the other pastors after the service. We were talking about having done it that way. And I said, you know what? It would probably be good for churches to never do it the same way two times in a row. I'm not saying we're going to do it like that. I'm just saying it would be good because I actually do like doing things the same over and over again. But uh, all that aside, we're not going to do self-serve today. But, but... To help you understand what we are doing today, I want to I wanna just quickly review with you the six points of application that I gave us at the end of that little two-week study back in January, just to kind of help you understand what we're planning today and why we're doing it, and also to begin maybe reteaching you and thinking through some of the specific things that we do uh, and process, both practically and biblically. So that's kind of my goal. So the, I gave you six applications. This was two, two three months ago now. The first application I gave you was that I'd love to see us begin observing the Lord's table as part of a meal. We're not doing that one today, okay? Sorry, Uh, I just wanted to acknowledge it because I was one of my six, but we're still talking and thinking about how to do that one. The second one was that I'd love to see us do it more often. Again, we're still working on that one, so hold that one as well. But number three I can talk about, the third application that I can address, I said that when we observe the Lord's table, the thing that is, that is most important to emphasize above everything else is the grace of God. And the two ways that that stands out most to me as I think about it is the grace that we have received in terms of the forgiveness we've been given, obviously, by God through the sacrifice of Jesus for our sins. And number two, the grace of God that is evidenced here by our unity in this act. You think it's by coincidence that a group of diverse people like this can can come together and be one church family? It's not. And our time around the Lord's table should, should emphasize the grace of God. And it was on this note that um, a few weeks ago, the elders had a retreat. And uh, Jordan, we were talking one night about this. Jordan asked a really funny question. So I'm going to give him credit for this. And it's a good, good question. He said, why do we always turn to 1 Corinthians 11 when we're going to observe the Lord's table? And if you're curious as to why he was asking the question, he went on just to simply remind us that 1 Corinthians 11 was written to correct a misuse of communion, specifically there in the church of Corinth, okay? It's a corrective. It's like a troubleshooting section. And he likened it to, like, you know, imagine you wanted to sit down and talk about your car. Think about your car for a minute. What if every time you sat down to talk or think about your car, you only pulled out the owner's manual and you turned to the troubleshooting section and you never looked at anything else? You never got to everything else that your car is or everything else you should be talking about. And you know, he's right. Why do we always turn back to the troubleshooting section when we come to this issue of the Lord's table? It never addresses the fullness of of all that this table represents. And so today, it's going to shock a few of you. We're not going to read 1 Corinthians 11. We're actually not going to read any of the gospel accounts because by now I think you probably know what happened that night. And if you don't know what happened, that's great. I'd love to explain it to you afterwards. So come see me because that would be a wonderful, wonderful conversation. We're going to go in a different direction 
We're going to end at the same place, emphasizing the grace of God. The fourth application was that our time of self-examination needs to change. You know, if you, again, if you've been a part of Cornerstone for a while in the past, before we would partake, I'd give you this moment where I'd ask you to bow your heads and effectively do penance before God. Um, yeah, that, that's missing the point. And I'm sorry that we went that way for so long. I'll, I'll own that one for us publicly. Uh, one of the, the beauties of the Lord's table is that it reminds us that we have never been worthy. We were never worthy before to receive the forgiveness of, of God through Jesus Christ, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, and we're not going to be worthy today, and you're not going to be worthy in the future either. So, so we don't need to be examining ourselves for that. God extends grace to the unworthy. If we come to this table feeling worthy of it, that's when you should be worried. Okay? That's when you shouldn't partake of it. If you feel like you deserve the body and blood of Jesus, then maybe you should not partake. So actually what we're going to be doing, though, today is examining ourselves for self-righteousness. And that's not going to be at a specific moment where I say, now bow your heads and examine yourself for self-righteousness. That starts now. Okay? So from now until the moment we partake, examine yourselves. The fifth application I gave you was that we needed less sobriety and more rejoicing. And I made that joke, which several of you have quoted back to me, that, you know, Here's a funeral, and like here's communion, like right above that, just barely above it. And you kind of gauge the excitement and fun of that act. And not that it's about excitement and fun, that's not my point at all. The, the goal, or my point was simply that we, we've treated it as if it's this terribly somber moment. And, and yes, it's not a moment to be flippant, but it is a moment to experience joy. We should be thankful and joyful over what Jesus has done for us, not sitting there feeling like we've got to beat ourselves up, you know, like hit ourselves on the head with something. It's not the point at all. Christ died to give us this kind of joy, joy that in our forgiveness, joy that we now have a renewed relationship with the Father, joy that we can have this relationship with one another. So, so no somberness, joy. And then finally, my sixth application was, I said our, our concept of remembrance needed to expand. In other words, we're not just simply remembering the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus kind of as if it's a past event that I just need to remember it. No, no, no. Very similar to the Passover context that the Israelites would go through every year there at the Passover meal, we need to remember that that truth is a present reality for us, that we are now living. You can get that phone, whoever it was. You can get that call. Uh, that that present reality, is, is, it's for us now. We are now part of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. We are now participants. We are now uh, members of the children of God because of this act. So it's not that we're not remembering those things. We need to remember more than that, though. It's a bigger remembrance than what we have typically done. And so with all of that said, I want to make, take a few minutes now, um, before we partake of this table, to challenge us kind of in a practical way, in a very pastoral way, with some thoughts on the issue of forgiveness and how it ties into this table from here in Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 to 35. Now, I want you to look at your Bibles for just a moment here because we're actually going to look at something that I didn't put on the screen purposely. If you look back just a few verses here in Matthew 18, back to verse 15, you'll see that this section we have read this morning is coming out of Jesus's comments about what to do when a brother sins against you. He says here in verse 15 that if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault 
Don't wait for him to come to you and figure out he did something wrong. Someone sinned against you. You go and tell him his fault, but you do it between you and that person alone. So you don't tell your mom. You don't tell your best friend. You don't tell anyone else. Just go to that person, and you talk about it with them. And Jesus says that if you do that and that person listens to you, you have gained your brother. Now, if he doesn't listen to you, if he's not sorrowful over his sin, if he's not repentant, then Jesus gives a process for how that should be handled. We refer or tend to think of this section as being about the the topic of church discipline, and that's fine, but that's not my focus this morning. All I want you to see is that there's something about that conversation between verses 15 and 20 that must have raised a question in Peter's mind. And you see that question here in verse 21. He asks Jesus, Lord... How often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Now, it is a funny question to us in many respects. I I grant that. But I think we need to give Peter some credit here because he is putting into words an issue, a question that every single one of us have as well. He is envisioning a brother. And as you hear the word brother, don't just think of male sibling. Just think of, of, you know, a friend, a companion, a fellow believer. It can be man or woman. It could be friend, family, or just acquaintance. It's it's just a general term for anyone. So think very broadly here. He's envisioning someone sinning against him repeatedly. And he wants to know how many times that can occur before he has to stop, he stops having to forgive that person. As you can see here in the text, he is very generous. Should I let that person sin against me in the same way, you know, up to seven times? But on that eighth time and after, you know, now I'm, I'm free from, from the need to forgive. Is that sufficient, Jesus? And, and we can laugh at his question, but it, it's not really funny because I'm pretty sure that every one of us is in this room, we have our own number. Now, we may not have articulated it quite as clearly as Peter did. But I would almost guarantee you, I I would almost be willing to stake my life on it, I'm this certain, that every single one of you in this room has your own number for these things. I'll talk to married couples for a moment. Do you struggle uh, to forgive your spouse because they keep doing the same thing to you over and over and over again? It could be big, it could be little. Do Do you struggle in that way? You know, it's just gone too far this time, it's one too many times, I'm angry, I can't forgive them. I talked to children and parents in the room for a moment. Have your children or your parents perhaps sinned against you in a particular way so many times that you just are done with them? They've just they've crossed the line, I can't forgive them, and it's been a problem in your relationship ever since. How about for people in the room who have friends or family anywhere? <laughs> have any of those people ever sinned against you so many times in a particular way that you just can't Forgive them, and I'll lastly talk to everyone who's a part of Cornerstone. Is there someone in this room right now, or in this church right now, who has sinned against you, or has done something to you, or maybe has not done something for you repeatedly to the point that it has put a strain between you and that person because you can't seem to forgive them? You see, if we're honest, we all have our number. We all have a number of some type, of some level, Peter is just brave enough to put his out there. He's telling Jesus he is willing to let someone sin against him up to seven times, and he will still forgive them, but he wants to make sure that when the eighth time comes, he is free of that requirement. 
that he is justified at that point in not forgiving them, that unforgiveness is now okay. So are you, are you clear on his question? And notice Jesus' response. I do not say to you seven times, but 70, seven times, or the old translations were better here, 70 times seven. Imagine 70 sevens. That's how many times you need to keep forgiving them. Forgive them 70 sevens. Peter thought he was being pretty generous in offering up to seven. Jesus blows his offer out of the water. And to drive the point home, he then begins to tell a parable. And I know it's been a really long time with us and Mark. It's been a long time since I preached on on what a parable even is. I'm going to remind you very briefly, just to help us with this here. The word parable itself just simply means a, a throwing alongside. That's it, okay? So you've got an issue, you've got something here that's being discussed, and a parable throws something else alongside of it to help clarify something about the main issue. Now, it doesn't always have to be a story. There are all kinds of different parabolic forms. There can be little proverbs, little wisdom statements, little facts. But oftentimes, Jesus likes to use stories. There's something about the story context that really helps draw something out. So in our case here, the issue is Peter's question. When is unforgiveness justified? That's the question, right? When is unforgiveness justified? Okay, Peter, you want to understand? I'm going to throw out a story alongside of it to help you get the point that your seven time, uh, offer of seven times is not quite sufficient. So let's, let's go through the story. Therefore... The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wanted or wished to settle accounts with his servants. And when he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Now stop. What is a talent? Because we're going to miss details of the story if we don't ask some key questions. A, A talent was the largest unit of currency available in Jesus's day. And if you're going, okay, well, can you put that in a dollar amount, like a modern equivalent to help me understand? Um, I'll I'll give you an example in a moment, but you need to recognize it's very hard to do this because are we talking Roman talents, Greek talents, we're talking gold talents, silver talents. Talent was a measure of weight and value. So it's hard, but just to give you a, a general ballpark, and then I'll make it specific in a few moments, to give you a general ballpark, 10,000 talents is worth on the low end hundreds of millions of dollars up to billions. Hundreds of millions on the low end up to billions. It is an absurd scenario that a servant could owe his master this much money. It'd be like if I told you that you owed someone a bajillion dollars. Like, you can't even begin to process this much money. I mean, for for someone in Jesus' day to be like, you owe 10,000, what? Like, there's, there's no even way to process this amount of money, and that's kind of the point. And as you can see here in verse 25, of course, there is a problem with owing this unbelievable amount of money. He couldn't pay. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made, which would be very common practice in that culture for someone who couldn't pay back a debt. So what does the servant do? He falls on his knees, imploring the master, have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. (laughs) And it's a ridiculous comment. Master, if you can just be patient, I can pay you back the bajillion dollars. I'll find a way to get all that money. It's a ridiculous comment back to the master. And, And 
I think the master in the story understands its ridiculousness. Because why does he forgive him the debt? Is it because he actually believes that the debt can be repaid? No. What does Jesus say? It's out of pity. He looks at this man and he has pity on him. Mercy, love, pity. And so what does he do? He forgives him this debt. And just just think about how you would feel. Some of you in this room, I know, you're, you're like struggling to pay off like debts that you've incurred, maybe it's student loan debt or credit card debts or other things, and you feel so weighted down by all of that. Imagine if you got forgiven of those amounts. Now put yourself in this guy's shoes. He owes a bajillion dollars, and now he's like, you've been forgiven. You don't have to pay it back. I mean, how would you feel if you're this guy? Oh, he must have been ecstatic. But, of course, the story isn't done. When that same servant, the one who had just been forgiven, this huge debt went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. Now, again, let's stop, because now you'll understand the talents a little better. How much is 100 denarii? It's not chump change. To, to help you, and again, it's hard to put an exact dollar amount on it, but I can give you a context that will help you understand. In the time of Jesus, an average day's wage for a working man is one denarii. Okay? So you're just a, you're a laborer, you, you're a carpenter, you're a fisherman, you're whatever, you're just an average worker. Your average day's wage is going to be one denarii. So that means that this second servant owes the first servant a hundred days wages. And, and to help you understand that, you know, I, I ran some numbers. If you bring home, I'm talking net, if you bring home $30,000 a year, 100 days of your take-home pay is $11,538.46 if you bring home $30,000 a year. So, I mean, put yourself in his shoes. You, if you only make $30,000 a year and someone owes you $11,500, that's a lot of money, Right? This isn't, this isn't a $5 debt that's being owed. This is a significant amount of money. If you bring home $50,000 a year net, 100 days of your take-home pay is $19,230.77. If you bring home over $100,000, I'd like to talk to you about getting a loan after the service. Uh, <laughs> it's a significant amount of money. We, we sometimes have heard, I've heard at least, people say, well, this is like nothing. No, this is not nothing. This is a significant debt that this guy owes to the first servant. But now to put that in comparison to the talents, I've told you that, that a denarii, a single denarii, is equal to an average man's daily wage, right? Okay, one day. How many denarii does it take to make a talent? Anyone want to take a guess? I'll take one guess. Who wants to be the brave person to get it wrong? Go. A bajillion, a bajillion is close. And on that note, I'll tell you the right answer, 6,000. 6,000 denarii to make one talent. So do the math. You would have to work 20 years and never spend a penny to make one talent. The first servant owed 10,000 talents. That is 60 million days worth of wages. If I go back to my $30,000 example, this is why I told you it's kind of hard to estimate these things, but you, if you get some context, you can begin to understand it. If I use my $30,000 a year take-home pay example, your take-home 
pay per day is $115.38. At 60 million days, your total debt would be $6,922,800,000. 10,000 talents. Do you begin to understand the scenario that Jesus is putting forward here? The first servant, again, it's an unbelievable sum. It's un, he can't pay. There's no patience that will repay back $6 billion. The second guy also owes a significant debt, 100 days worth of wages. That's a lot of money too, but it, it puts the story a little bit of perspective. Okay, so now, now back to the story. First servant finds the second servant. He's choking him, telling him he's got to pay the debt he owes now. So the fellow servant falls down and he pleads with him the same exact request, the same exact words of the first servant, have patience with me and I will pay you. Except this guy actually could, right? I mean, 100 days you could do. 60 million days? No, you can't do. But 100 days you, you can do. I don't know what words I'm, numbers I'm throwing out here now. I'm getting confused. Um, but what does the, the guy do? He, he refuses and he went out and he put him in prison until he should pay the debt. Now we'll just kind of follow it to the end. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. Do you understand why? They're greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summons him and says to him, You wicked servant. Can you feel the anger now of the master? I mean, I just forgave you $6 billion and you can't forgive the guy $11,000? 6 billion, you wicked servant. I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Not because you deserved it. Not because I thought there was a real chance you could repay it. I did it out of pity and pity alone. I forgave you all of that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you, and in anger his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. And now we come to the big finish where Jesus has been heading with this with Peter. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Now, go back to Peter's question right? That was the issue. And throw this story out alongside of it. Peter's question was, at what point can I be done forgiving? Or to be much more specific and to the point with it, his question was, uh, when do I have the right to not forgive somebody? That's really the, the heart of his question. When do I have the right to not forgive someone? And most people, when they ask and answer this question for themselves, I'm talking about you and me on a daily basis, we normally will answer it in one of two ways. We'll either answer it in a quantity way or a quality way. So uh, in Peter's example, he thought of, of the quantity method. He thought of the quantity of sins. You know, do I have to forgive them up to seven times, but, you know, eight and beyond, I'm free? I think uh, it's interesting that Jesus' story that he throws out alongside Peter's question doesn't go the quantity route. It actually goes the quality route. For, for Jesus, it's about, you know, the size of the, of the debt. You know, the second servant owed a, a significant debt, 100 denarii, right? It, that's a big debt. And you and I, don't we tend to think in these same general categories when it comes to the issues of forgiveness? I mean, how many of you have thought or said something like this? Well, they've done this to me too many times. I'm done with them. I can't forgive them ever again. 
you know what you're doing? You're, you're using the quantity method. They've crossed some line. They've gone too far. They've pushed past a certain point. Or some of you may have said the other way, oh, they did this to me, this thing, and that's just too big. I can never forgive them. Or you've put it out into the future. Oh, if they ever did this to me, I would never be able to forgive that. You know what you're doing? You're, you're justifying your lack of forgiveness based on the quality method. Based on Jesus' story, does anyone, not out loud, but in your own heart and mind, want to venture a guess as to how he would respond to either of those measures? I think he'd say two things. I think first, he would remind you of how much you have been forgiven. And secondly, then, he would say, so my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. And that's really hard for us to hear, really hard, because we don't like it. You know, if someone has wronged us or maybe wronged someone that we know and love, what are our typical responses? What do we typically want? Well, we want justice to be served. I want justice for them. Really? Do you want it for yourself? Do you want justice? Do you want God to mete out justice to you for your sins against him? Well, no, 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 no. I don't want that at all. (laughs) No justice for me, but just for them. Uh, We want people who wrong us to get what's coming to them. But do you want what's coming to you? Do you want what you should have gotten? Wrath from God, eternal hell, is that what you want? We want them to be punished, but we don't want to be punished. We want vengeance and payback, but we don't want God's vengeance or his payback. We want what is fair and right. And I've said this before in our house, we have this thing. When you say you want what's fair, I ask, do you really want what's fair? Because what's really fair is hell. If you want what's fair, that's what you're really asking for. Do you see the problem here? We want to hold people's sins against them, and we want to feel justified in doing so because they've either sinned so many times or because the sin is so big and bad, but we ourselves do not want to be held to that same standard. Not at all. Folks, the fact of the matter is that the gospel demands that we be forgiving people. You know, if you're holding anger, bitterness, hurt, against someone else. It could be a spouse, it could be a child, it could be a parent, it could be a sibling, it could be a friend, any other family member, a neighbor, a co-worker, whatever. You are the one in sin. You are. You say, well, you don't know what they've done. I don't, I don't care what they've done. And I'm not downplaying the significance of the sins that have been done against you because the reality is, as I stand up here every single week and look out in this room, I am always, always, because of my interactions with you now over the years, and I'm always reminded of the brokenness that is in front of me in these chairs. We're talking rapes, murders, (laughs) abuse, physical and sexual, drugs, alcohol, theft, current sins, past sins, sins you've committed, sins that have been committed against you. We all come in here on Sundays and we look pretty. We're all smiley and happy. But every Sunday, this room, starting at this spot right here, is filled with brokenness and sin. If you're holding those things, I'm not diminishing what people have done. Some people have committed a hundred denarii sins against you. I acknowledge that. But the reality is, is there's a lot of sins we hold against people that are like dollar sins too, aren't they? Like I don't even have to have a big sin against me. I I can hold a little sin too. Folks, big or small, 
If you are a believer in Jesus, you have been forgiven of far, far more than anything that anyone ever has done or ever will do to you. Let me say that again because this is the critical moment. If you are a believer in Jesus, you have been forgiven of far, far more than anything that anyone has ever done or will ever do to you. And if you don't really believe that, if you're sitting there hearing those words and it's making you angry, you're like, that can't possibly be true because he doesn't know what I've gone through, then as a believer, and I'm only speaking to believers, if you're not a believer, you're off the hook this morning, okay? For you as believers, if you don't believe what I said is true, then I think you've forgotten the truths of the gospel by which you have been forgiven. You've forgotten that despite how holy our God is, he loved you and chose you while you were still in your sins. You have forgotten just how sinful you really are compared to the holiness of God, that that chasm was far wider than anything you could ever imagine. You've forgotten the wrath of God that was rightly yours, rightly aimed at you. You have forgotten that you did nothing to deserve God's forgiveness, and I mean nothing. You didn't pursue him, he pursued you. You didn't come to the realization of your sin or of your need for forgiveness on your own. He gave you faith and called you to repentance and forgiveness. You've forgotten that he didn't ask you to pay for your sins, that he gave his own son to pay for them on your behalf. And you've forgotten that he didn't wait until you were worthy to give you all these things. He gave them to you when you were very unworthy. This table, folks, it is designed to remind us of these very things and to put them before us in a very tangible kind of way. You know, in coming to this table, we are reminded that we are still unworthy. We're still sinners. And that's a wonderful thing because I'll never be worthy, but I'm accepted anyway. In coming to this table, we're reminded that Jesus gave his body to be broken for us and poured out his blood for us. He took our place. He took the wrath that was rightly ours. And eating and drinking, we're reminded that this should have been our body which was broken. And it should have been our blood which was poured out for all eternity. And had it been that way, it would have still not been enough. But rather, that Jesus gave his body and poured out his blood to pay the debt that we never could once and for all. Done. And coming to this table, we're reminded of the great forgiveness and grace that we've been shown. And it calls us, no, it demands us that we show the same grace and forgiveness to others as well. I mean, how can you eat the bread? How can you drink the cup and thank Jesus for the forgiveness that he has brought to you while you yourself will not forgive someone else? How can you eat it? How can you drink it? Heed these words from Paul in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 31 to 32. He says, let all bitterness and wrath, he's talking to Christians, and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. All of it has to go. You say, but what about this one? All of it has to go. And in its place, he says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, and here's the big one, forgiving one another. How? As God in Christ Jesus forgave you. You want to know how you're to forgive? Forgive the way Jesus has forgiven you. And if you're sitting in this room today and the Spirit of God is like convicting your heart right now of your own selfishness and hypocrisy and 
and self-righteousness of not wanting to forgive someone else of their sins against you or of someone that you know and love, then this table is calling you to confess that to God now. It's calling you to forgive those people from your heart, as Jesus said, right now. It is calling you to repent right now. Yes, it reminds us of all those things, but it also reminds us of one thing more. It reminds you that even your sin of unforgiveness that you're struggling with right this moment has been forgiven. That even in your sin now, in your unworthiness now, you have been forgiven of all of that through the body and blood of Jesus. And now your hope and power to forgive isn't in yourself. It comes from Christ. It comes from the power of his resurrected life. Well, the men who are going to serve us this morning come and gather around the table. As they do, I want you to sit there and just for a moment, just think about this. Just reflect on what's, what the Spirit may be convicting you of. Is there a name in mind? Is there a person in mind that you recognize you have not forgiven? I want you to confess that, not to make yourself worthy, but because it needs to be confessed to repent. And then Ed is going to come and pray, thanking Jesus on our behalf and confessing our sin on our behalf for the unforgiveness that we ourselves face. Ed, pray. God, thank you for your word that cleanses us, that gives us truth, where we confess that we live lives of double standards, that while on one hand we can, our hearts can get full of your love and, and of your grace, that you Christ, die for us on the cross, and then the next minute go out and call back our debts and not have grace and love for those that have wronged us or owe us. God, we, you've already forgiven us, so we don't ask for that, but we, we do confess to you our, our brokenness and our inability to on this side of heaven, arrive to be perfect. Lord, we acknowledge that you alone are king. You alone are perfect, deserving of worship. You apply justice the way you need to apply justice. You thankfully apply grace and love and and have pity on us because we owe so much. Lord, you have forgiven us all of that. And so we pray. Lord, that we would reflect you well to those around us, that we would acknowledge that grace, that we'd be a reflection of that, of your grace and your love to those around us. Thank you for all these things in your name. Amen. This bread represents his body, which was broken to purchase our forgiveness. Do this in remembrance of him. This cup represents the blood of the covenant that made us right with God and with one another. Do this in remembrance of him. You bow your heads in prayer with me. Father, thank you for the free forgiveness that you have given us. Thank you for what you have done to make us right with yourself, for sending your son not asking us to pay for our sins, but in pity 
in love and mercy, forgiving us simply because we place our faith in you. Forgive us for not forgiving others. Forgive us for our own lack of grace. May this table remind us of the necessity that we have as followers of Jesus to go out and be the most forgiving people this world has ever known. We can't do that in our own power. Jesus, you have to do that through us. You have to live out that grace through us. So we come and we remember today that this wasn't just a past reality of forgiveness. It is a present reality of forgiveness that we now live in and have to communicate and, and give to others every single day. Thank you, Lord, for your word. In Jesus' name, amen.